So here we are in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would breathe your spirit of life into us that you would, this morning, let your word come land in our hearts in a way that would cause us to rejoice and to desire to live for you all the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we consider reoccurring plot lines that grab our attention, there's a, there's a particular character that we see come up again and again which we tend to find intriguing in our movies, in our shows, in our books. And this character grabs our attention, I think, because there's something in us that senses this is a real thing. But for us to see characters that seem alive, but yet are not. I'm speaking of characters like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, completely entranced by this ring. It has the power over him, making him unable to to make good decisions. He's no longer really a hobbit. And in the story, he somewhat becomes like a zombie. He's walking. He's talking. But inside, dead. More encompassing would be the the, the fascinating movie uh, titled The Matrix, uh, because it's not just one character, it's all the characters in the movie, isn't it? They're, they're all hooked up, and if you take the red pill, well, then you know nobody's really living. They're all in this simulation. And even though they, they're, they're sort of alive, they're hooked up, and functionally, in reality, it's like they're, they might as well be dead. And they serve this higher master that they're enslaved to, and they don't even realize it. And so when you see classics... Books, plays, like Frankenstein or Dracula. We are a people who are intrigued with this idea of dead people who are walking. <laughs> and this morning, I begin with some bad news, and probably you, you, you see where I'm going with this, don't you? What we appreciate and what you and I find intriguing in fiction is, in fact, a category that belongs to nonfiction as well. Paul was aware of this category. 
And so he's speaking about this category, a people who walk, who talk, and yet are dead. He says to these Ephesians that they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked. They were the walking dead. They were like zombies, if you will. And being that in our time is short for the material that we're covering this morning, I don't want to beat around the bush. I'm just going to get straight to the meat of this matter and just raise the question for you this morning that we need to ask. Could you be among the walking dead? And if so, is that the end of the story for you? Is there a hope? Is there a reality? A serum that will bring you to true life so that you're walking as truly not as the walking dead, but walking as one who's truly alive. And to get at this this morning, first consider with me, we need to examine and just ponder for a bit and meditate on who exactly are these walking dead. And so we see this in the first three verses here of chapter two. So I'm going to read these again, where he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. And the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul comes with this diagnosis that if you will hear me, will land uh, you not just walking dead, but but if you understand where Paul's going with this, he says this will land you in a place where you're dead, dead, not even walking dead. And to truly understand why he comes with this diagnosis, we rewind back to Genesis 3, where the, the promise was to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat this fruit, you will die. And when they did, spiritually something happened to them so that they too, even though Adam and Eve, you look at, they, of course they got up the next day and they got to work, they were, they were farming, they were sleeping, they were eating, they were having children, they were doing all these things, but functionally they were the walking dead that moment because spiritually they had died and physically eventually they would lose their lives as well. And they were setting into motion a course that Paul says here, says that in verse two, a course that this world is following. It's a path that leads to destruction. Now, while I was in high school, I, I was never good at ball sports, okay? I, I was the runt. People would throw me around like the ball. So I gravitated towards other things like s- skateboarding and snowboarding and eventually track and cross country and these sort of things. And while running cross country, I ran on many different courses, um, and, and many of them are like the trails that, you know, you would just take out in the backwoods right here. They're, you know, maybe eight or 10 feet wide. But there, there was one course that I went and ran that was at Camp Riley on the coast, uh, the, the army transfer. And I, while I was there, um, I've never seen a course like this because the course was literally as wide as a football field and then some. And it went that way throughout the entire course where you, you end up on the beach eventually, and then you're running uphill. And you know when you're running uphill, um, it's in sand. It's, you know, one foot forward and a half step back the whole way. 
And this course was supposedly, we were told it was quote unquote fun because you're running through this monstrous course that was wide and, and there wasn't just a couple teams. There were hundreds and hundreds of students there for this event. They're brought in from Washington and Idaho and Oregon. We all were there running together and you go through, um, like waist deep mud. So it was almost like one of these mud, uh, runs that you go through. And I remember our coach, he said, listen, when you get done with this fun, you're going to be wrecked. You're going to be destroyed. And you're going to feel and like you are dead from exhaustion. And so he warned us, he said, plan on taking at least a few days off from running after this because you are going to be destroyed. Friends, that's the type of course that this world puts you on. It's a broad course that many people are traveling down. It's wide, it's broad. It seems like it's fun, but in the end, you are wrecked. And the reason we could be on this path is because we're just merely following the path that was set out before us. It, and, and, and not just this course, not just this past, but also we're following the prince of the power of the air who's ruling over this course. Who is that? Well, this is in reference to the devil, to Satan, who is spiritually at work in those who reject Christ. Yet Paul doesn't cease there. He adds to this, not only is there this course in which the spirit of the, the prince of the power of this air is ruling and leading us in this broad course that leads to destruction, but he says also in here, there's something going on because he adds the passions of the flesh. And when Paul writes the Galatians, he, he, well, he flushes out this idea of what the passions of the flesh are. He says the works of the flesh are evident It's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you see, if you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, why this broad road that leads down this path and while Satan himself is leading and we pictured as the walking dead zombies going down this path would find ourselves at the end wrecked in destruction. So how do you know you're among the walking dead? You're following these three things that lead you down this path. The way of the world here, this course set before us, you're own flesh and passions and even the devil himself. This is the world, the flesh and the devil, this anti-trinity, if you will. And, And therefore you may be walking, but you are the walking dead and spiritually dead people cannot live for God. Romans chapter eight, verse seven says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not even submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews chapter 11 adds, and with, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to him, uh, near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And Romans 14, 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And this is why we must see that even Paul, even Paul who writes all this, he's a Pharisee. He was on the same broad road. Think about this for a moment. When When we read earlier about Paul, this one who's headed on towards Damascus, that this one who desires to do 
all these great things. He, he wanted to be a devoted follower. He probably didn't lie. He probably tithed really well. People even probably felt that he was considered to be a very godly and perhaps holy man. And yet he says, I was on this path with you among those walking dead. And so you can be very religious. I hope you hear this. You can be very religious and not have the life that this letter is speaking of. So I'm scared for those who refuse to repent and believe Jesus because they are unaware that they are like zombies following the course of this world, following the power of this age, following their own desires and marching towards a cliff that leads them to destruction where they go from walking dead to dead dead. Paul doesn't pull the punches here. He, he notes that those who are on this course are children of wrath. That is, they will receive the wrath of God rather than the grace of God. This is bad news. That even in this bad news, though, there is embedded some, some good news. The good news is, for these Ephesian Christians, that this is all past tense for them. Paul is not saying you are dead. You are following the course of this world. He says, no, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So church, Christians, the good news is because of this, it means that even if one finds themselves like a zombie, walking dead, they do not need to remain in that state. Something can happen to them that in the terms of John 3 will make them alive, make them born again. And so we ask, I'm asking you, what is it? that it takes for us to go to be from the walking dead to the living saved, to become God's handiwork is the language, his masterpiece. What does it take for this to happen? To become the walking alive, the living saved. Well, this work of transforming the spiritually lost into his renewed creation, his workmanship begins with him. This is where we turn. We see this whole flow going from verse 4 now to the end at verse 10, where I'll conclude today, that by grace through faith, you have been saved and made alive to walk as God's masterpiece, his handiwork. This section begins at verse 4 with this great phrase. I love this. But God, look at this. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you had been saved. The condition of being the walking dead is, is ours, but the work of renewing us is God's work. It's a work that leads Paul to begin with mercy and great love. What kind of love and mercy are we talking about? Well, we're not Uh, talking about a mercy and love that is granted to us when we fix ourselves up and start to turn our ship around. So I hope you hear this. This is not a mercy and love that God says, oh, now that you're turning to me, I grant you this mercy and love. No, this is a type of mercy and love that does the work of turning our ship around. Picture a man who's at sleep at night and he hears rumbling downstairs, someone has broken in and is stealing his objects. And this man, you know, is distraught. All of his items have been stolen out. And the man who stole them is off trying to sell them. And while he sells them, he comes to his senses and thinks, this is wicked. What have I done? This is evil. I shouldn't be doing this. And so he returns the items back to the man and pays him back and says, I'm so sorry. And the man forgives him and says, you are forgiven. 
I forgive you for all of this. Now, that would be grace. But the grace we're looking at here is far more tremendous because it's the, 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 the scenario is the man who stole the items is now out in the back alley on the black market trying to sell these items. And the man whose home has been broken into, he comes out to the back alley and says, I see your great need here. I see that you've been driven to live this way. And I'm here to pay for my own items and give you forgiveness and give you grace. Friends, that's the type of picture that we have because we were on that course. We were the walking dead heading towards that cliff in rebellion against God while God intervenes with grace. We're looking at a mercy and a love that is a transforming love and mercy. Do you see the language that Paul uses? That while you were a zombie, a dead man walking, God made us alive. The problem is that walking dead don't know that they're dead. They must have someone come and make them alive to see it. And this is the good work of God. Later, we read that in verse eight. This wasn't your own doing. It was the gift of God that while you were on this lifeless march, that God opened your eyes. I opened up our time in Ephesians 1 and reminding you, telling you the very story of what happened to Paul, that he's fighting against God. He's on this march to Damascus to put Christians in chains for their faith. But God miraculously blinded his eyes. And ironically, when God blinded Paul, Paul was able to finally see the grace that God would have for him. And he could really see who the true King of Kings was, the true Lord of Lords. None other than Jesus Christ, the one who was breathing murderous threats in Acts. We find out later God had breathed new life into him. And while your testimony and perhaps my testimony is nowhere near as dramatic, it's no less miraculous that God would turn your heart towards him. It is no less than the work of God. The one who is on a zombie march has his path altered and is now walking in a newness of life. So that Paul can tell the Ephesians, by grace, you have been saved. They were not saved by intellect. They were not saved by luck or human efforts or works. If you're with us this morning and you're still wrestling with who this Jesus is and what this gospel is, please understand this morning. Please understand that we do not believe that people are saved and go to heaven because of their moral efforts. We don't believe that they're saved and go to heaven because of their kind actions or being upright or living or their own religiosity. The Christian message is saved by grace alone. By grace, verse five, you have been saved. Saved from what? Well, verse three says the wrath. The wrath of who? Chapter five, verse six says the wrath of God that comes on the sons of disobedience. Why wrath? Well, due to the trespasses and sins that we read here in chapter 2, verse 1. How is it again that we are saved? Well, by grace and the forgiveness in Christ's blood. Chapter 1, verse 7. Which again, is it's all encompassed in this idea of grace. And so, we can ask then the question, to what end is all this? What's the end part of all this? Why, why being saved by grace? Well, I'm being brief here, but essentially it is so that the life that Christ walked would be your walk too. That just as Christ died and rose and ascended all the way to heaven, where he sits in glory, that we too, if we are in Christ, we will rise to heaven to sit with him so that 
even more clearly that you and I see now, when we sit with him in glory in heaven, you're going to see him face to face and you will see the scars on his hands. You will see your savior who stood in your place, receiving the wrath that was supposed to come on you, but rather was upon him. This is where you will see exactly just how rich you really are in Christ. And Paul says, you'll be so rich, you won't be able to even calculate it. He says, these are the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love Ephesians because it's all here and it's all so clear. The grace that God has for us, what it takes to get there, the joy that we're going to have as we are with him in glory. And then we, we see this again where we see that phrase. Look at verse 8 where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul, he repeats this phrase two times. He says, For Uh, By grace, you have been saved. He says this twice. Now, in verse 5 where he says it, the track he goes with it, for by grace you have been saved, he goes heavenly with it. The reason you've been saved is with an end goal that you would be with Christ in glory in heaven. Then he circles back again to this phrase, for by grace you have been saved. And as he comes this time to it, he's now going to drill down a little bit deeper on how does this come about? And this is where we see here, he's saying it is through the path of faith. He says this grace that gets you to heaven comes by a certain particular avenue. There's a road that this grace is traveling down to come to you. That road that it comes to you is faith, belief, trust, hope in Christ. Faith, if you will, is like the syringe that gives you the life-saving medicine of God's grace in Christ. I don't know if that's helpful, but to think of it in those terms. Faith doesn't save you. The syringe doesn't save you, but it brings you the life-saving medicine that you need. And this is the reason Paul highlights this. It all becomes so clear, and I hope you see that if you're a Christian, it is because of the amazing work of grace in your life, including the faith. Why is it that Paul's emphasizing that here? God's purposes in saving us by grace through faith. Why is it that he's emphasizing? He says that once we are saved by grace, but then he adds in here, we are saved by grace through faith. And I think the reasoning is, is as he says right here, so that we have nothing left to boast in. That we can't boast in our works. We cannot boast in our thinking. We can only You and I can only boast at the end of the day in Christ. God's trying to remove anything out of the way that would remove glory from him. At the end of it all, he wants it to to be nothing left except God's work in you. And he says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So some wonder here, is it's like the, the gift here is the gift of faith? Is that what Paul's referencing here? Or is the gift supposed to be the grace? Like, which is it? And I'm not going to clear all this up, but let me just say the grammar behind this is unclear. Um, And there are debates on many sides, but let me just say that I think what makes the most sense in the context here is that Paul is speaking of the gift being in relation to the total package of grace through faith, that all of this is a gift of God 
to you. Um, and, and even if you just rest with where the gift is closest to, which is that word faith, This is something that elsewhere is so affirmed in scripture. So we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, where according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, what the idea is God is assigning faith. So some, he says, I'm going to give this person a lot of faith and this person I'm giving just this much faith, um, some little. But what's amazing with the grace of God is whether you have little faith or whether you have much faith, we all get in by the same grace through the faith. So, even if your faith is weak at times, that salvation is still coming to you by grace through that faith. And it's the, the giver of this is God himself. John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them and says, this is the work of God. What's the work of God? That you believe in him who he has sent. So that there are belief is a work of God. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So there Paul says, it's been granted to you to be able to suffer, but not a suffering outside of anything. It's a suffering that is bound up with belief. It's been granted for you for the sake of Christ that you should believe in him, but also suffer. And this means that you and I, we can pray and really mean it when we pray, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief because God is the giver of that faith. And he loves to answer that prayer. Lord, I believe help my unbelief because God is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. As Hebrews 11 says, he's the one who begins it and completes the work in you of faith. And this all emphasizes the amazing work of God's salvation in us. And it means we stand in awe of God's work in our lives. It humbles me because there is no redeeming quality in which God said, okay, Thomas, you've made it 99%. You've done really, really well. You just need a little kick in the pants to get you over the edge. No, I was the zombie walking away from my creator and God in his miraculous gift of grace melted my heart and gave me the life breathing spirit to see the truth of the gospel and walk towards him. There, there was a tale of a man. He would go down to the landfill and, and these, you know, the workers there at the landfill, they would be kind of sitting there with their arms crossed watching him. And, you know, what is he doing today? And he would go through the landfill and he's pulling out stuff. And so he pulls out this chair, this three-legged chair, and the back is all unhinged and unglued. There's an, another day he shows up and he's, finds a table that's completely, you know, cracked in half and he pulls that out and, and a dresser and the dresser is missing the knobs and the dresser's kind of off its own rails and it's, it's a mess. And this man calls this stuff and he dumps it in the back of his pickup and then he drives home to his wood shop back home and he begins to sand and he begins to pull out a lathe and make a new leg, he gets out the wood glue and the, the clamps and he begins to do this ornate, um, you know, engraving into the wood and fringe work that's incredible. And he then begins to restain a lot of this. And he puts these pieces of furniture up in his mansion. And guests, when they would come over to, to come for dinner or have a cup of coffee, they would look at his mansion filled with this beautiful furniture. And they would say, well, you know, what shop did you go and pick that up? And he'd say, I, I didn't. I didn't. No. I, 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 this was my work. It it was by my grace that I pulled it out and made it 
a masterpiece for my good work and purposes. And so we see that right here in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works in which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, that's you. That's me. God doing this work to create his workmanship and preparing these good works for us. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but we've gone from walking to walking. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And now we're right back to walking. Verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The tenses are key here because it was you were, you once, and now it's you are, and so that. No, friends, this is not a grace that God will give you when you finally start walking straight. This is a grace and a love and a mercy that was given to you so that you can stop walking dead and finally, as this passage ends with, walk in the good works that he prepared for you beforehand. So Christian, if you're headed for heaven, you can't live like hell. If heaven is where you're walking towards, you walk in good works. Well, I ask you, what does that even look like? We keep reading this letter and Paul spells out the types of good things he's thinking about. If you flip over a page in your Bible or two pages over to chapter 4 at verse 17, we'll see that word again that's kind of our word here in our passage where Paul's talking about walking. So he says in chapter 4 verse 17, Now this I say, I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now skim down to verse 25. So he said, don't walk that way. Here's how I want you to walk. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give an opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who's in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only such is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Church, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Do you see all this? Why is God calling us to all of this kind of a walk? Well, because we've, we're now alive. We're not dead. We're raised, seated. The same power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead so that we would walk now alive in his good purposes as his workmanship. And this must give us pause for thought. What Christ has done in you. St. Augustine, he was reflecting on this. He says, men go abroad And wonder at the heights of the mountains and at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers and the vast compasses of the season, at the circular motion of the stars, and yet they pass by themselves without even wondering. In other words, he says they're not understanding that we 
are to be God's workmanship. Some translations, again, put it handiwork or masterpiece. And it gets at the idea that God's work in us is incredible. It sets us in Christ apart from the rest of creation so that we can be in our good work just singing for God's glory, reflecting back to him the praise just for the beauty of who he is. I don't know if there are any fans of the show American Idol in here. Um, It might be now one of the most popular shows ever. But for the contestants, I know many of you have seen how this goes, or even if you've just seen one episode, you kind of get the gist that it's really nerve-wracking and 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 sort of wrenching. The last thing you want is the judgment to come upon you. So you're, you know, not only singing before all the millions of people on TV, but the the hundreds of fans in the crowd there, and then of course the the judges in which you sit before. And these contestants, uh, you know, as they're up there singing, you know, one missed note will cost you the competition. Um, it could. But if you win, of course, it'll alter the course of your life. So at the end of each season, when the competition was over, the the winner is crowned. And at that point, you've won. It's been done. You've you've been achieved this, this great place. And so at that point, you're no longer under the wrath of the judges, especially of Simon Cowell, which you do not want the wrath of him at all. Instead, you've, you, you, you now, almost like you've been crowned, you come out and you sing one last time. And this one last time is not for the approval. It's not to prove yourself. It's not to earn anything. You just sing for the beauty of singing. And it's beautiful. And this is exactly how it is for Christians who've been turned from the walking dead to the walking living. We're no longer trying to earn anything. We're no longer trying to get the approval of our brothers and sisters or even the approval of God. We are his masterpiece that he is working out and he's begun a good work of salvation in us and he will complete that work and he will grow us in our faith. And we just sing now for his glory, doing whatever the good things are that he's called you and I to do. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, the subject grace The object, Christ. The path forward, faith. And the reward is heaven to come. So Christian, I hope that this will be the banner of your life. I hope this will be what gets you out of bed in the morning. This this is what gives you hope through the trials. This is what gives you purpose to do what he has called you to do in this new work. And it all comes encompassing and circling around the simple yet super deep idea that we are saved by grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we see that you save us from sin. We see that you save us from a path that leads to destruction. We see that you save us from death, but we also see that you save us towards something towards glorifying you as your handiwork your new creation that you are working in and through us by saying there's nothing in our hands. We bring just simply to the cross. We cling. We pray that you would give us new life here where we've grown stale in the gospel. Would you breathe it into us again this morning? Would you renew our hearts? Will we find a new joy even today in Christ? We pray. Amen.